Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pulse Check Podcast. I'm Hehe. And I'm Mandy. And today we are diving into why language matters. And this might seem so silly. All of us are probably thinking like, duh, language matters. But when you're in a healthcare system, language matters even more and specifically from your healthcare provider. So Mandy, today I would love to just dive into the fact of how sometimes you run into the issues that medical providers don't realize that their language is actually harmful from the things that they say to and around patients in the room from maybe not acknowledging someone's pronouns or their name that they are, are wanting to go by. Maybe it's talking outside of patient's room or at the nurse's station, making fun of patients and clients. All of this not only impacts the patient's health and safety, but it also really kind of demoralizes the whole unit culture. So You've been there. You've worked on units where this has happened. Let me hand it over to you. What are your thoughts on all this? Oh, I like this topic. Um, yeah, of course we know language is important, but what, uh, what came up for me recently in a workshop that I was teaching last night was questions about scripts and questions about changing the language. And so that's why I think that it's, it's a very timely topic because we're, starting to identify through social media, like you and I talk about a lot that patients, clients, family members are, um, posting on social media, they're recording, they're quoting, they're bringing up comments that nurses and providers are leaving on social media and they are like airing it. Um, in our chat yesterday, we were um, it was a work- workshop called stirrups are restraints. Of course, as a labor and delivery nurse, that's, that's, that's what we talk about <laughs> on this side of nursing. And it was for labor and delivery nurses. And someone asked the question, what do you say to your patient when it's time to push and you're teaching about alternative, like the variety of pushing positions that there are. And of course I'm like super wordy and it took forever for me to get to the point of, I assume I'm being recorded 
all the time. And as a content online content creator, you understand this, like everything that you write, everything you email, everything you blog, everything you record can be used against you out of context or can be used against you period. Like if you just fuck up and you're using, you know, uh, poor phrasing or you it's, it's a point of, um, I still need to learn about that topic. And someone's like, let's blast her about this. Uh, you can always be, um, you're, you can always be recorded also now in healthcare, you can always be recorded. And I think a lot of nurses are transitioning to that idea, but, but we're very like resistant about it. Um, like we have any control over what people record with their phones. Everyone has a camera in their pocket. Everyone has a video camera in their pocket. Everyone has an audio recorder in their pocket. And so us saying like, Oh, it's against policy to record the birth means jack shit for people who have cameras and video cameras and audio equipment in their pocket. You might have 10 different, you know, audio recorders in one room during a birth, during a trauma, during a surgery, whatever. I don't, I don't, um, I don't tell patients not to record anymore. And I used to, and that that's what you're talking about. That culture of, um, being in healthcare, the culture, the, uh, we are told um, to tell people not to do it. We're told that it's against our policy. We're told the lawyers don't let us do that. We can't let you do that. But, you know, how many nurses are actually in control of what people can do with their phone? We're not. That's not our job. We don't get paid enough for that shit. Also, like, <laughs> why should we be put in charge of that? What is that? Right? <laughs> we have enough bullshit to deal with. So I'm not in charge of what you record. But that means that that checks me and how, you know, I'm always thinking like, how is this, how could this be taken out of context? I assume that it's going to be recorded. I assume it's going to be replayed for another nurse, for a colleague, for a provider. Like these folks go back to their primary OB and they could be like, yeah, do you want to see my birth? I recorded it. And there's me right there. Right. That could totally happen. So I don't want to ever talk down. You and I have talked about this, like talking up our colleagues, um, helps, helps us feel better about our job, helps us feel better about our colleagues, helps our colleagues feel better about us. Like it's all helps us look better when we talk up our colleagues. There's so many benefits to that. I want, I want that to be replayed. I never try to make it about somebody else, but, um, I do try to give all of the information that I have to my patient when they're ready for it. And in a way that they can understand. So that's like constant, um, reevaluating, like, where are you at? Is everything, is this in a way that you can understand? Do we need to draw it? Do we need to go look up pictures on the internet? What do we need to do to make this, um, to, to allow you to have informed, to make an informed choice. Um, but yeah, the, the culture, the nursing culture, provider culture per, for sure is often the second you get away from a patient, you have to dump and like vent about how hard, how hard that job is, how difficult that patient is. Oh, it's gross. But so there is a space for that, right? To say that nurses and providers don't get or aren't allowed or aren't afforded the right to vent or complain about their jobs. Because look, we all know there are annoying people that come, right? You never want to be that annoying person, but they exist. They do come. They're going to come to the ER. <clears throat> They're going to come have a baby on your L&D unit. There are going to be annoying 
patients. Here's what you can't do though. You can't talk about them right outside their birth room. You can't talk about them at the nurse's station. You can't make fun of them audibly in the hallways where they then hear you. You also shouldn't do it just among like your whole entire unit. In my opinion, the, the non-nurse, I'm here's my opinion as a non-nurse, I think you should have one or two nurse besties. It would probably be better if they didn't even work at your hospital or on your unit that you can go have drinks with, have a, a night and just powwow. Talk about the things that are frustrating and challenging in your job. Talk about the patients that really pushed you and challenged you and made you frustrated, made you feel all these emotions. And then within that, I think your nurse besties have an obligation to help you A, see that your feelings are valid, but B, then hopefully help you the next time that you get into that situation, figure out how you might be able to handle it a little bit better. Maybe you don't need to step out and take a break because you're not as frustrated. Maybe you don't need to hand that room off to somebody else because they're on your nerves so badly. Um, you know, look, it's hard being a nurse. It's hard being a provider, especially right now. Like, it just sucks. And I, I think that a lot of people will be like, well, then how am I supposed to deal with all the sucky parts of my job if I can't ever vent about it? It's not mm -hmm. that you can't vent about it. It's about choosing specifically where and who you vent to. Yeah, I think it kind of sounds like uh, you see and hear either on social media, you see the comments or you hear um, staff venting around your around your clients or in the healthcare setting and it kind of sounds like maybe it's irritation stemming from other things and it's um taken out on the patient or taken out on a colleague or taking it out on really not the issue but the issue feels insurmountable that's hard that's super hard. I think everything feels insurmountable right now in healthcare, doesn't it? Like yeah. Everything not feel like a huge mountain, even if it is a tiny little molehill. It, it just feels, right. everything feels too big right now in healthcare. Right. When something is irritating, it becomes massive when you're wearing a used N95 mask. So yeah, not, not downplaying any of that. Uh, definitely. I vent, I bitch, I moan, like we all do it. Um, what you deserve to, you should be able yeah, to, Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. You, you have to have that space where you can get out those ill feelings. That's human. right. And what makes, what perpetuates that unit culture, that really like ugliness where then your colleagues also kind of have permission to talk about each other behind their backs. They have, there's like this not safe feeling when you're already talking about patients and you're already talking about others. It's just that this is not safe. It's not, you can't trust each other. It kind of perpetuates that, um, everyone for themselves mindset. It's not trauma informed when you were talking he about your bestie really has an obligation to, um, what's the word challenge you <laughs> to challenge, to both challenge you like, oh my gosh, wow, you were in a really hard spot and that was really difficult or wow, those feet were really stinky and that was really shitty for you or funny or whatever. We have to get out about it. Uh, and then challenging you, challenging both of you to be like, 
wonder what that person felt like, or, you know, wonder what they really needed. Did they tell you what they really needed? Were they able to open up to you? Tell me how you knew that they trusted you. Something like that, that really gets us excited deep down, which is why we're there. Um, of course, of course, at this time in COVID, like I know that there's priorities, uh, and this may be sounding tone deaf, um, in the time that we're in, but I still think that we can strive for trauma-informed care and it takes some of that sloughing of venting. It takes some of that, like talking it out and working it out with someone that you really trust. And if the unit is moving in that direction together, it's much easier, of course, what helped me and what the nurses wanted to know last night in stirrups are restraints. We were talking about the trauma-informed birth nurse program, which we've talked about a little bit on here, um, for labor and delivery nurses. And they were like, no, Mandy, but what do you say in the room? They're like, what do you say to the patient? What do you say when the provider won't leave? And I've totally had that happen. It's, uh, it felt a little undermining because I felt like the provider thought, well, Mandy's here. She's going to offer a bunch of different positions. I'm not really here for that today. I'm going to stay in the room. They do a cervical exam or they, you know, they do a check. Oh my gosh, it's time to push. Let's do this. And then they stay there. And I feel like that's a little, I feel like they're doing that on purpose, whatever. That just means that pause, that physiologic, like take a, take a second to figure out what you're feeling. What do you want? Do we need to empty your bladder? Does everyone need to stay in the room? What, like, let's reevaluate the feelings of the patient, recenter the patient on goals, um, have the goals changed, whatever with this new information as we would after any period of new information, but physiologically before pushing happens, there's often a pause and whether that pause comes up naturally or not, you know, air quote, naturally we can take a pause, whether the providers there or not. And we can do our education with the patient about, um, you know, asking those questions, asking how they feel, asking what would help support them at this time, what they want to do next, giving them options, giving them education about their options. Um, what's helped me is transparency and just being the person who you can count on to just say it out loud. And people treat you really differently when they think you're going to be the person to say it out loud, just like they think you're going to be the person to, you know, in your group of friends, you're going to document it and put it on social media. You're going to tell them different stuff, right? You're going to like agree or not to agree to be in pictures with them because you know, it's going to go straight to social media and you're going to be tagged and so I was, I tried to be that person and that's not usually me. I don't like to say everything out loud. I don't like to be that obvious. I I'm like totally taught as like the helper nurse, which is like the avatar we talk about. Um, we're all taught how to be a helper nurse. And it's really gross when we start to like define what is a helper nurse, you advocate for policy, you advocate for provider preference. Like you center what the hospital and the nursing school has taught you to center. I know your face it's gross. Is that what nursing school teaches you is to be a helper nurse? Yes, but they call it like, don't you want to be an advocate? That's what we've sussed out. And that's what we call it in the um, trauma-informed birth nurse program is we're helper nurses. The, The hospital and nursing school monopolizes our education. They pay for all our contact hours, continuing ed. I have nurses who want to be in the birth nurse program, but their hospital refuses to pay for out of hospital contact hours. And so they provide all of the required contact hours for that year for you to renew your license or your certifications. 
so they monopolize it by paying for like covering all those costs, which for, you know, blue collar middle-class worker is significant, can be significant and meaningful. So they monopolize the education, um, and they get to, yeah, they get to put in their bottom line and their goals inside of that education. So really you think you're being an advocate, but what you're advocating for is questionable. Um, you kind of have to decide that as a nurse. So last night we talked about like non-negotiables, like what, how does a nurse advocate? What does that even mean? Who defines that? And it's often, um, case by case, what are we really advocating for? We kind of have to look at that. So that's a lot, a hard pill to swallow, but what helped was I started to be really transparent kind of like playing dumb, but also like in a way that allowed the patient to really know what was up instead of coded language or like nonverbal language, coded language. The patient does know what's up, whether you're in the birth space or other healthcare spaces, the patients are very aware of what's going on and they remember it for a very long time. Often Um, they remember odd parts about the story that we don't remember, but they, like you said, they remember how, like our faces, they remember the motion in the room. They remember what we said verbatim, or they were fucking record it. So then they remember all of that. Um, one of the parts, one of the barriers to pushing in different positions in last night's workshop was verbalizing. Um, one of the solutions is verbalizing safety and verbalizing the goals of the patient. And so what tends to happen is we, get into the routine of like, this is how we do it. Do, 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 do. Let's be efficient. Boo, 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 boo. It's not like we have a lot of staff. It's not like we have a lot of extra time. We always have too many patients and not enough nurses, not enough providers, whatever. Um, but what we're doing is routine interventions on folks without permission. So one of the examples is stirrups, um, turning someone onto their back for procedures or for pushing, like moving a body. Um, all of those are interventions we don't consider them interventions because they become routine and they become culture and expected, but those are all interventions. And so those unsaid things of like, okay, let's get you on your back. The way that we talk, you know, we don't offer like options. So people are like, I didn't know I could push in any other way because they literally said, get on your back and keep pushing like this until your baby's out. Um, we don't have to do that <laughs> as, as, as healthcare professionals. So we can change our language around that in front of the patient and it's uncomfortable. There's resistance there. You're going to get resistance from others around you, but what you're doing is kind of telling the story out loud. Oh, so, so so-and-so, um, wants you on your back, but you know, it's up to you. How do you feel comfortable? This is what we usually do next, but you know, totally up to you. Let's talk about that. It takes longer but it's trauma-informed, it's patient-centered, it's transparent. It actually feels good ultimately because what we do want as nurses, what we do want as healthcare professionals is to be helping the patient and not to be doing things to them, right? And what would you say as a nurse if you were saying, you know, this is what we typically do next, but you absolutely don't have to push on your back. You can push in any other position and the provider pops in and goes, well, whoa, 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 uh, we, we, you should be on your back. It's better. Uh, you're safer on your back as a nurse. You're in a weird position where you're like, uh, that's a lie. They're not safer <laughs> on your back. And also like, uh, 
am I allowed to speak up? Like, can I speak up? What words would you use, Mandy, if you had, if you find yourself in that situation? So that's one of the most uncomfortable situations for me that I could ever imagine personally, you know? Yeah. You're nodding other folks, you know, they don't want to be in the hallway one-on-one, you know, it's different, but that in front of the patient, flat out lying, flat out coercion, you know, flat out, um, really sticky situation. The patient's going to be able to know that something's up already just by you saying that I can feel my body change. So in that situation, I know my body's changing, right? Mask on or not, like there's some tenseness going on. And that is a direct attack on what I just said. So there's some tenseness in that phrasing and that language. Um, that's not something that I created. Like I didn't create that lie. That is not my responsibility. You spout bullshit. Like I cannot take responsibility for that. I don't feel bad about that. Of course I do but I'm trying not to feel bad about that because like, you're going to make yourself look stupid. This, um, I would say like, I really, really hope that I'd had some hours with this patient because I would have already spoken about this earlier. Right. So like, obviously I know the baby has to come out. Obviously our goal is that they're going to be pushing this baby out. Eventually this is no surprise. One of the benefits of pregnancy is planning, right? You know, this is inevitable. Let's work toward learning about it as soon as we possibly can and getting some information around that. So patients want information. I want information from them. How do you see this going? Like, what have you seen? What kind of class, what did, what did you talk about in your class? Oh, you didn't see a class. What kind of live births did you watch? Like, tell me what information you have. So I can say, cool. That's totally like what I've seen. Or, Hey, did you know this was a possibility? So they can mull it while they're resting with their epidural and a peanut ball or whatever their situation is. If that's not the situation, I'm going to address it differently at that time. But hopefully the patient has already heard me say there's as many pushing positions as there are labor positions. Pushing positions are not birth positions. Pushing can take a while. We are going to move. I will ask for your feedback constantly. And then I have proven that they can trust me over and over, you know, over and over when they're like, this isn't comfortable. And I'm like, Oh, you're not in the position yet. Do you want to keep moving and get in there? And then I'll say, Hey, how do you feel? Or do you want to just abort? And like, I wouldn't use that word. Do you want to just like quit, go to a different position? Let's go back to what you're comfortable. Where are you at? And like discomfort zone. Um, hopefully we've gotten kind of that shared language and that relationship already when this person says, Oh no, on your back is way safer. Then I can be like, Oh, well, Maybe for some, but the recommendation is that we don't push on our back. Comes from A1, comes from ACOG. You can begin to quote studies. <laughs> you can begin to, you can, you know, stay nonchalant and just be like, hey, there's so many ways. Like, I'm here for whatever you want to do. I cannot move you without your permission or help you move without your permission. So, um, and not leaving at that time is really important unless you and the provider leave together and go have a conversation about the patient's goals, which is what I would hope the conversation would be about. It would probably be about my, um, what's it called when you don't follow direction? Insubordinate. Insubordination, right. It'd probably be very top down from that patriarchal, uh, 
Mandy, you're the nurse and I'm the boss of you. I would have to be like, uh, technically you're not the boss of me. And also technically I'm an expert at pushing positions. So I think we can all agree here that I know my shit. <sighs> that would be a whole nother difficult conversation. Uh, but we're not used to being transparent at the bedside. We're not used to saying shit out loud that we should be saying because the patient should know what's going on. We should be charting this. We should be talking about this out loud. How many nurses do you think actually take the time to have that conversation that you just had with this hypothetical patient of, well, what kind of childbirth classes did you take and what kind of live births have you watched and what kind of positions are you familiar with? What kind of questions do you actually have right now? What's going through your head? Because I can tell you from a doula standpoint, it ain't a lot. Fuck. I am in a world where the nurses that are talking to me a lot on social media are people who are really trying to incorporate yeah. this into their norm and they weren't taught it yeah. by their preceptors. So we are having these discussions. We are talking scripts in my emails and, you know, TikTok. We're sharing this information a lot more. So I see it. I also saw it when I was doing it at the bedside and I would, um, incorporate it in any education, you know, you sit down and you have these conversations when time permits and when time allows, of course, this is like really nice when you can have an admission and it's just you and the patient. And then you don't get your other patient for a few hours. It's not possible when you have two nurses on a unit of five patients, it's not possible when, you know, you're in impossible situations on your unit. And I understand that that is learning trauma-informed care. You are in an impossible, um, harmful, abusive system, and you're trying to center the patient. You're trying to honor human rights. You're trying to prioritize respect and autonomy, informed choice, when it feels like no one else around you is. So I can agree that it can be, you know, it can be like, a diamond in the rough in some locations, but I know a lot of nurses love to get this information from their patient. They love, they know that connection comes from someone else being able to share with you, not just me spouting a bunch of information. It comes from them being able to share themselves with me and me being able to tailor, you know, that experience. Like, what do you want out of this experience? I have to know that to be able to advocate for you. Otherwise, I'm just advocating for your safety and sharing all that I know that may not be helpful for you. And wouldn't you say that that simple conversation between patient and nurse is going to benefit everyone because you're therefore reducing the trauma that that person is going to go through. Right. You're reducing the trauma that you're going to witness. You're reducing that residual trauma that you're going to walk away oh from God, yeah. this experience with, right? Yeah. So a simple conversation in the beginning, even if you're not the nurse that admits this person, but even at shift change to just sit down, catch up with them, learn what their goals yeah. are, introduce yourself, explain right. your position, explain to them, Hey, I am an advocate for you. When you don't want something, all you got to do is give me the eye sister. And I will, I will work it out. Right. Circling back to that provider that's mm -hmm. standing right there in your face going, well, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. We want them on their back. Would it be appropriate for a nurse? This is just what I do as a doula. Of course, mm -hmm. I don't work for the hospital, right? I'm mm -hmm. not employed by anyone there. Would it be appropriate for the, the nurse to look at the, the patient and say, 
you know, Dr. Jones has suggested the the stirrups, but you don't have to, it's, you can push however you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Do it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. That is their job. That's their job because uh, then you are manipulating someone's body without their permission. So you are just as at fault for assault if you hurt them or um, unwanted touching at minimum, uh, which could contribute to the feeling of powerlessness, which could contribute to the patient feeling like they can't say no. And now you're in a stuck cycle where you're doing things to someone who feels out of control and you are potentially at this point causing the trauma with your hands. That's some hard shit to say and hard shit to hear, but yeah, you have to, in in an effort to prevent trauma all around in an effort to prevent birth trauma and to maintain autonomy and agency for the patient, you have to wait for permission and ensure that they understand what's going on, which means that they have to understand all alternative options, which means you can give those options. This is moving the body. We're not talking about medicine or treatment. This is a, a physical position that their body can be in. You don't tell them how to take a shit. You don't tell them how to have a baby, right? You didn't follow them into the restroom and make sure they wash their hair the appropriate way. That's not, that's like care plan. Can we keep body mechanics safe? Can we ensure, um, that the patient is not falling off the bed? Can like, those are your responsibilities, right? That's part of your care plan. But within the realm of safety, you have to give alternative options. And especially if your governing body, if your professional organizations and the evidence keep pointing to what your provider is recommending is not evidence-based, nor is it recommended by your, by your uh, professional organizations, it, it then can come down to, well, did, did you not know that as a nurse? Are you not keeping up to date doing your continuing ed? And isn't it your responsibility to include those in the conversation if they are not included? If you did know about them, why did you hold back? So you really have to take personal responsibility for the education that you provide. And there have been decades, if not centuries of this top-down patriarchal model of be quiet and do what I say. So like, if that feels bad, that's why you have taught, you have been taught not to say anything. And you may have negative consequences for doing so from the provider and your charge nurse and everyone who's centering the providers and everyone who's centering the hospital bottom line, because you're making it, you know, air quote difficult for them. But as a nurse, your non-negotiables are prioritizing the patient. It's systemic, right? I mean, it, yeah. it starts in nursing school. It, 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 yeah. It's as deep as like every single corner you turn around, yes. you're going to be facing this pressure to shut up, sit down, do your job, don't say anything, go yeah. to sleep, return to work the next day, shut up, sit down, do your job, say nothing, go to sleep, return the next day. It's just, it's cyclical. So it could okay. be harder stand up when the provider comes in the room, have their gloves ready. Like all of this is like, why am I prioritizing this? This has nothing to do with my code of ethics. It has nothing to do with what I'm actually here to do as the nurse. And there is a, a huge dissonance and a huge confusion between the role of the nurse around the role of the nurse. And we all feel that we all know that. Um, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already feel every day, 
I just want to give you confidence around, Hey, we're fucking changing this. You see the changes going on where hospitals are frantic and they want to change. Um, they want to change the law around nurses working in other States. They want to change, uh, travel nurse boundaries. They want to change all these things because they're hemorrhaging nurses. We are powerful and we can change over to trauma-informed care. We can do it individually. So saying it out loud, being like, oh yeah, well, you know, I have this graphic pulled up on the computer from A1 and it has these 37 pushing positions. I'm totally happy to help you in whatever this provider, you know, I understand you like, you know, the stirrups, but I'm here for whatever you want. Um, keeping it matter of fact and transparent and out and like verbalizing it, um, that provider may come back to you. A lot of people may come back to you. I would say, try to have conversations in public if you can, um, because you, you then are telling the patient that you're here for them, but then, you know, prioritizing the routine is not actually trustworthy. Um, well, that's why, that's why it feels shitty. Yeah. yeah. You're not being a patient advocate at that point. You're, you're right. just not fulfilling your job role. All right. So wrapping up, I yeah. do have one phrase that I absolutely cannot stand. And it's something that I actually was guilty of when I first started doula work. It's the phrase for me. So can you open <sighs> for me? Can you scoot down to the edge of the bed for me? Can you lift your butt for me? Do you think that you could move your legs for me? Hell no, I can't do it for you, bitch. I'm having the baby here. Like, are we kidding? It's and I know that it is so again, I did it when I was when I when I first became a doula until I learned about this. But when you really think about the for me phrase, it truly does perpetuate the idea of this hierarchy that the patient is on the bottom and that everything they're doing is there to serve you because you're the highest educated person. You have the highest degree. You're the highest paid person. You are the one with the white coat. Mm -hmm. Um, So for all of our providers and nurses listening out there, here's, here's my challenge for you. Starting today, right now, you're today years old. I really challenge you to drop that from your language bucket. I really challenge you to stop saying for me. There are tons of alternatives. You can just end your sentence there. You can just say, would you mind moving your legs? Would you mind scooting your butt closer? You could even give reasons. Do you mind scooting your butt closer to the edge of the bed? It'll make it easier for me to, to kind of see what's going on. Would you mind moving your legs? It will make it a little easier as I'm trying to get this new chucks pad underneath you. Would you mind lifting your butt? I'm trying to get you some clean towels underneath you because I know it's probably very uncomfortable to sit in what you're sitting in. Give your people the reason of why you're doing what you're doing. And your reason is not for me. For me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's real ugly. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, parallels for that and like abusive language, right? Ugh. like it's a choice, like you're doing it for you, but then you don't feel like it's a choice. Like everything's a choice, but it just doesn't feel like that. And yeah, you're centering yourself at that point. instead of centering the patient. I think it's so funny how many times we say something when we start to stop saying it. And I cannot wait to hear from listeners how they were like, I didn't think I said that, but I said it 10 times today. So let us know when you're like, (laughs) you just have to swallow it. That'll make a big difference. I wonder what, what your patients will respond with as well. 
And they're going to notice and you're going to mess up. So if you mess up, just simply retract and say like, oh, I didn't mean for me. This is all for you. Would you just mind please scooting your butt down to the end? I'm having a hard time, you know, reaching or getting this in or seeing or whatever it may be. And then it's a choice. Like, I know that that would make it easier, but I, I can't move right now, but maybe in a minute or I don't want to, or this would make it better if I could move, but could you put a blanket under Informed refusal is everything. It really is. You cannot have informed consent without informed refusal. And that right there is the key factor to so many of our issues in the American healthcare system. Ooh, I love that. I love this language. I love this language topic. Let us know if you have questions. And I'm super stoked for next week. What's up next week? Hee hee. Travel nursing. Right? Cross our fingers. We have a guest about travel nursing. So if you have questions, let us know on Instagram what your questions are so we can ask our guest all the questions you have about travel nursing. Pulsecheck.podcast on Instagram. We'll see y'all next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to leave you with a quick stat and something to think about until we see you next time. According to a 2018 report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the prevalence of sexual harassment in academic medicine is almost double that of other science and engineering specialties. This presents a serious danger that ripples into patient safety, clinical outcomes, and burnout, which leads to costly loss of talent. How much safer could medicine be if nurses and physicians weren't also battling sexual harassment day in and day out? If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.